book of John begins with us being reminded of the fact that God is the Logos, he's the logic, the reason, the wisdom, the doctrine, the truth, and we are told that God erects a temple, a tabernacle for himself where he may reside. That is the whole of creation, the cosmos, and the earth is a special place there, and there was a garden that he created to be a place for the beginning of the habitation of man, that man should multiply and fill the earth, and thereby the knowledge of the Lord would fill the earth as men spread and know God. Jesus came into the world, and he was a special dwelling place of God. He is the incarnation. And so we have the erecting of the tabernacle in terms of the creation, the world, the man, man being saved, being made a knower of God, Christ coming into the world. And then we moved into verse 29 and considered Christ as the Lamb of God, the sacrifice. And we are reminded that there is this sort of walking into the tabernacle that is the order of the book of John. So we're reminded of the sacrifices of blood. We were reminded of the animals that were slain and they point forward to Christ. And then there is the section that we're in now, chapters 2 and 3, that focus on the idea of the brazen laver of water, the bronze bowl of water for cleansing. And so we have these two great symbols, the sacrifice to pay for sin and the cleansing work to remove our indwelling sin, to, to remove and break the power of sin, to cause us to be changed to be washed, to have filth removed. So there is our standing before God, whereby we are forgiven, whereby we are counted as righteous. And there is our being changed to make it so that we are subjectively, inwardly better. So this book, John 20, verses 30 to 31, says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. We look at the cleansing of the temple last week. I want to remind you of some key things there. Christ came to the temple at Passover. This is the beginning of his ministry. So he goes up to Jerusalem because there's a commandment to go to the temple at the Passover. And he found people in the temple who were selling animals for sacrifice and there were money changers there. And remember, the money changers are trading out currency that there were in the Roman Empire and in many nations of the day, the currency of the day had idols on it and they had blasphemous sayings. They would assert false divinities. And so the temple, they did not want to retain in it idols. They did not want to have blasphemous sayings. And so the desire was to have payment to the temple for any tithes or temple tax or whatever, that that would always be done with money that didn't have idols on it. So there was a changing of money. And you could get that. You could trade that. You could get it. Just It was available in the market. The, the Jews encouraged the use of this money. And that money was also known for being um, not debased, unlike the currencies that were used by many governments. And so it was a more pure silver or gold. And so there was this desire to receive that money. Nothing wrong with that, to receive that, as opposed to the money with idols on it and with blasphemous sayings. The issue was that this was being done in the temple. The issue was that the house of prayer was being turned into a house of merchandise. 
The issue was that these people were turning the temple into a den of thieves. How? Is it by trading coins? Is it by selling animals that they are acting as a den of thieves? Oftentimes the interpretation is because they were selling animals at a profit and exchanging the coins at a profit, that therefore it was a type of theft. And that's ridiculous. All trade involves the person trading because they think they're going to get gained by trading. That's not the problem. The problem was that it was in the temple. And so it was taking the house of prayer and making it into a house of merchandise. The church is a very limited set of authority, limited things it is to do, and it is not to do the business of the household and to use the resources of the church for that is a violation of its authority. So we talked last time about the limits of church authority and the phrase just divinum, which means the divine law or divine right. And so we have to look to the word to be very careful to worship God in the way that he's commanded, to teach the doctrine that God's commanded. But this is very specifically focused on the idea that we should have the government of the church in the way that God has commanded. Now, church officers are limited in their authority as stewards. They do not have the right to do as they see fit. They are required to do as Christ sees fit. So that was the problem. That was what was focused on in that text. Verse 15. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. We talked about how this is making a whip of cords, and I think it was Mr. Boyston who pointed out to me later that somebody else uh, had talked about Jesus going into a rage or something. That's not the case. This is a deliberate action. He has the time to manufacture an object. He makes something. He is angry, for sure, but this is a controlled anger. So what is anger for? Anger is meant to help us to direct our power against the wicked and for the defense of the innocent. Anger is to help us to direct our power against the wicked for the defense of the innocent. And so Jesus, with anger, righteous anger, creates a whip of cords. He uses that whip to drive the people selling and the animals out of the temple. Look at the language there. He drove them all out of the temple. Who's them? It's not the animals. He drove them with the sheep and the oxen. Them is the people. He used a whip to drive them out. And the animals. And he poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. Flipping tables, causing the money to go scatter, creating a scene in chaos and terror to get people to leave. And we pointed out last time, notice what he does with the doves. His goal was not to destroy property. His goal was not to harm animals. His goal was to get them out. With the doves, he couldn't whip them without harming them or breaking their cages and thereby losing the property of those people. So what he does is he goes and says to the ones who sold doves, take these things away. Right? So he makes the cord, whips people, whips the animals, is going and flipping over tables, and then looks at the guys with the doves and says, out. And they knew he was serious. And so they grabbed the doves and they left. 
Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will eat me up. The only way to prove this doctrine that the house of God should not be a house of merchandise is if you believe in what's called the regulative principle. The regulative principle asserts that we cannot do anything except what God tells us to do. And so you go, okay, why can't we sell in the temple? Is it forbidden? Well, yeah, you can point to this text. But how did Jesus know? Jesus knew it was forbidden because it wasn't something that was commanded to be done in the temple. The temple was commanded for a particular set of things. And it was to be set apart wholly to that purpose. And to use it for other things was to steal it from God. So how are these people a den of thieves? Because they've stolen God's temple. It's not selling animals for profit. It's not making money on monetary exchanges. It is stealing the temple of God. That's what they stole. That's how they're a den of thieves. They're squatters in the house of God. Now, a part of this that's awful is the place where they're trading is the outer court. And the outer court is the court that is designed to make it so that people can come into the temple, can come into the church, can become converts. This outer court is called the, the court of the Gentiles. So the space they took up was the space where there should have been room for people to come in and to learn and to be able to go through the process of catechesis. And so what they are doing here is rather than being a beacon to draw in the Gentiles, they are making it so that the space that's for the Gentiles is unwelcoming and unavailable, and people hawking their wares, making it so people cannot focus on prayer and worship. Now, this idea of the cleansing of a temple is a repeated thing that occurs when there are reformations that occurred in Israel. One of the great examples of the cleansing of the temple is King Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 29. He tears down the idols, removes stuff, and then he restores right worship in the temple. He removes false worship, removes false usage, so that right usage can be put into place. And that is followed in chapter 30 of 2 Chronicles with the proper celebration of the Passover. Now, Jesus is there at Passover. And he's trying to remove things that ought not to be there. And he is seeking to have the right worship put into place for the right keeping of the Passover. So, this is a hint at the kingliness of Christ, pointing to Hezekiah. As a priest, he's obviously cleansing the temple. As a prophet, he's proclaiming to them what they ought to do. And his authority is first and foremost because he is the God-man. But he's also been commissioned in his humanity as the Christ to go and do this work. Now, we talked about last time the fact that this is the first cleansing of the temple, and there's a second cleansing of the temple that occurs in his last year of ministry right before he is executed. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all communicate about that. So I've given you the quotes about it. And in that place, 
he focuses on saying you've made this a den of thieves. He says that over and over in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the various records here. And also the idea that this was to be a house of prayer, a house of prayer for all nations is what it says in Isaiah. So this work of the cleansing of the temple, he does it at the beginning of his ministry in John 2. He does it at the end of his ministry, at the end of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, in all of these cases, there's a question about the authority from which Jesus acts. And verse 18, John chapter 2, verse 18, So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? They come and ask him, what's the legal basis of what you're doing? What's the precedent for this? And what authority do you act on? Now, the, the greater question should have been, for them, they should have paused and reflected and wondered, are, is what we're doing here violating the pure worship of God? Is this going against the right approach that God has instituted? Are we in violation? Instead, they go, what authority do you do this based upon? So, I want you to take note of this. We all have a tendency to respond like the Jews here. Here's what happens. You do something wrong. Shocker. Then somebody tells you what you did was wrong. And then, rather than considering the charge, examining ourselves, and considering whether or not we should repent, we often go, well, why do you think you're the one that should bring this to me right now? And so we displace the charge, we displace the matter, and emphasize the authority precedent, the rules of procedure. Now, it's very important that procedure be followed before any sort of disciplinary act be used against somebody. But we should be very careful when we're the ones receiving a rebuke to consider the matter. And if a person has not followed process, then we can go back and say, now in the future you should do this, and I want you to you know, acknowledge that and to repent of the failure process unless it's something that by itself is going to create great harm. If the harm of failing to follow procedure is going to be worse than the harm of not dealing with the issue, you might say, okay, let's deal with the procedure piece first. So that takes some wisdom. For example, if somebody's taking a private sin and unveiling it publicly in a way that's irreversible, that could be stopped and say, hey, let's go talk on the side about this. But that's not the same as saying, nope, you talked about it in public first, and therefore we're not going to talk about it at all. Or, nope, you talked about it in public first, and so you're in the wrong, and I'm not even going to think about it. That would be inappropriate. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Right, what he might have done is simply opened up the Old Testament and said, you know, the parts where it says this is supposed to be holy unto God, the parts where this says that uh, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, the parts where it says that there's people in the past who have made this into a den of thieves by misusing the house of God, that's my commission. It's the word of God. The same thing that gives you any authority to use the house at all. But Jesus answered and said to them, all right, fine, fine. Fine, you want a sign? Let me give you a sign. And when he does, he's a pretty smart guy, Jesus. Like, everybody agree? Pretty smart guy? Okay, so when he says this, and it's a confusing statement, 
Do you think he knew it was confusing? Let's read what he says. What's the confusing thing he says? They ask for a sign as a justification for his authority. He says, oh, okay. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Is Jesus surprised at all that the general response to this statement is to go, what are you talking about? This stone temple here took a long time to build. How are you possibly going to rebuild it in three days? Is he surprised by that response? Jesus is not an autistic guy walking around not understanding social cues. We often read Jesus as like so zealous and whatever. Like he, he gets it. Like he knows. He understands the effect his words are generally going to have. He is not surprised by the fact that when he says things, it offends people. That's the point. That's what he's doing. He's trying to provoke people. He is a wise teacher, and his words are goads that are meant to aggravate the wicked and poke the righteous along. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? He was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. The disciples aren't even getting it yet. They're there, they hear him say this, and they go, yeah, okay. They don't get it yet that he's talking about his resurrection. And so, but they're still there. They're trying to figure it out. You, as you go through the Christian life, we are so often slow and dumb and do not get it. We read the Bible and have no idea what it means and we just go to the next verse. This process of going through Scripture and not getting it, so often we get to a book or two or three later, or maybe it's just a chapter later, and then you go, oh, that thing that didn't make any sense at all makes sense now. And so God has designed it so that we do that. You know, when you study a new language, Bill Mounts, who is the guy whose system I used to study Greek initially, he talks about how when you're studying the language, there's this process where you study and you kind of feel like you don't get it and your temptation is to just stay in the same chapter and just study it over and over and over again before you move on and not move on until you get it. He says, look, studying a language is like walking into the fog. As you walk further in, the fog dissipates behind you. And so you just keep studying more of it. Well, the same is true of the scriptures. As you go deeper into it, the fog dissipates behind you. You just keep studying. You try to figure out things. You can't get it. That's fine. You write them down. You ask people about it. You keep studying it. But you also keep going and studying other stuff. And sometimes by studying the other thing, you find that the fog dissipates. And so that process of you take in the Word of God, you hear it, and God will give to you the understanding at His appointed time. If we keep pursuing wisdom, if we keep pursuing knowledge, if we keep pursuing the points that we don't understand, and we also keep pursuing other places, we have promised that God will teach us, He will lead us into all truth, He will cause us to be matured to the fullness of the stature of Christ. And so we should keep pursuing the understanding. He will reveal it at the appointed time. 
So this response is taking 46 years to build this temple. This is the Herodian temple. This is the temple in its glory, this white shining temple on Zion. This is the temple as it was described in Ezekiel. Now you remember in Nehemiah and in Ezra, there's this building of the temple, building of the walls around the city. There is this sort of depressing reality that there is nothing in comparison to the glory of the temple that was there before. Well, we're looking now, about 500 years later, what's happened across that time is Jews have been dumping treasure into that, and Herod dumped money into building it in order to try to get the favor of the Jews that he was ruling. And so this temple has been built to the description that it was in in Ezekiel. This is this huge temple. Thousand cubits, thousand cubits. Huge. The descriptions of the temple at the time, if you read Josephus, if you read what others say of it, this idea that it is this beautiful, shimmering, white mountain. On the inside of it, going into the Holy of Holies, covered in gold. This hidden, glorious, beautiful thing that only the high priest saw, and that, once a year. That's the temple. Jesus is the temple. The temple is the dwelling place of God. The temple is this glorious, beautiful point of a contact with heaven and earth, where the glory of God dwells. And Jesus is a temple of flesh and bones in his humanity and of a human mind. And the temple points to him. And so he is saying, if you destroy this temple, you destroy my body, and in three days I'll raise it up. And that's the sign why you should believe this authority. Now, they're never going to see him die and be resurrected unless they reject his authority. So the idea is, you want a sign? Fine, reject my authority, see what happens. That's what this is. This is a challenge. This is a statement that he understands what's going to happen here. Verse 20. When the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had said. John 14.26, John 15.26, and John 16.13 are three very important passages. And what they do is they remind you that Jesus told his disciples, Look, I'm going to go, I'm going to die, and when I leave you, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to remind you of all the stuff I taught you. And he says it again, John 15. He says it again, John 16. And so he tells them, I'm depositing truth in you, and the Holy Spirit is going to make you remember it. And you are going to give it to the church. And that will cause the church to mature. So this is that first thing here. This is a foreshadowing of that. that Later on, they're going to remember what he said, and they're going to believe what he intended to communicate, and they're going to understand how this is a fulfillment of what the Scriptures say. Now, Christ is literally 
in this temple of stone right now, in, in the time of the story, the time of this true story. He's in the stone temple, in his temple of flesh. And what he does is he is going to die to pay for the church, to save the church. And he's going to cause a unity of one spirit with his bride, the church, and one flesh with her. One spirit, he will cause unity in terms of the knowledge of the truth. In terms of one flesh, he is married, he is covenanted, he is bound to the church, and he dwells in the church as a temple. And so, if you have the Westminster Confession of Faith with you, I encourage you to open it right now to chapter 25. I want you to think about the reality of the church for a minute. Chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession. The Catholic or universal church, okay, the word Catholic means universal. So you're Roman Catholic, that means Roman, that's a locality, and Catholic, universal, doesn't make any sense. It's in Rome, but it's everywhere. Right, this is the idea that it's a. It's rooted in the authority of Rome. But it's not actually the Catholic church, it is a provincial local church of Rome seeking to dominate all other churches. When we talk about being Catholic, we're talking about having the church that is throughout the world. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one. So the elect, the chosen, those who have been chosen by God. The idea is it's invisible. You cannot see who is chosen by God and you cannot see faith in people. You can't see what I believe. You can hear what I tell you, but you don't know if I believe it. You can be a hypocrite. You can be a liar. You cannot read my mind, and I cannot read your mind. And so who is actually saved is invisible to the eye of man. But God sees the heart. And he knows the faith is there because he desired to see truth in your heart, and he put the truth there. So if you have it, it's because he gave it to you. So the elect, that's the invisible church. Those that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, and fullness of him that fills all in all. Okay, so this idea that the church is the bride of Christ, is the body of Christ, his fullness is there. And he fills the whole creation by filling the creation with his church, with knowers of him. Now on the other side of this, we have section 2. The visible church, it can be seen with the eye, it can be heard with the ear. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal, under the gospel. So in other words, under the New Testament, under the gospel, the church is not just confined to one nation as before under the law, as before under the Old Testament. So the visible church in the New Testament era goes to every nation, as opposed to just one nation. The word Catholic, in your mind, whenever you hear it, should always be in contrast to a national, one-nation church of Israel. That's the whole point of that emphasis. The emphasis of the word Catholic is about, there was the Old Testament church, which was stuck in one nation, Israel. And in the New Testament, it is Catholic, it is universal, it goes out to the nations, to the Gentiles. 
That is the point of that label. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, the New Testament, not confined to one nation as before under the law, the Old Testament, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion together with their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. The ordinary way that God saves people is by causing them to hear the word preached, typically in a gathering, to read the scriptures or hear the reading of the scriptures, and to cause people to make profession or to be raised up in a house where there is profession by the father or mother or both. That is the ordinary way of salvation. God sometimes does extraordinary things, but that is ordinarily how it works. The visible church is made up of those who make profession and their houses. It is very important that we realize the difference between the visible church, which is a sign, a symbol, a representation, a gathering that can be seen with the eye, and the reality of those who are actually saved. In the same way, the physical temple was a sign, a symbol, an emblem, a visible thing. But is God a God that dwells in houses made of stone? Is God a God that is retained within the bounds of a room or a nation or even of this planet? They are symbols. They are emblems for the reality. Section 3. Under this Catholic visible church, Christ has given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world and does by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. So the visible church is not a worthless emblem. It is an emblem in terms of there's an outward order. There's an outward administration. And God ordinarily uses the outward administration to convert people and to build people up in the faith. So this Catholic visible church, Christ has given the ministry. Okay, that's the service. He's given gifts to us to serve each other. He's given the oracles. In other words, He's given us the Word of God to be preached, to be spoken. The ordinances of God. He's given a law order to be used. And that includes things like baptism and the Lord's Supper. These things, the ministry, service, oracles, the Word, and ordinances, elements of worship and elements of government, the things we use in the law order, these are for the purpose of gathering the saints. And for the purpose of maturing or perfecting the saints in this life. And that's to occur until the end of the world. And Christ does by His own presence and Spirit, according to His promise, make the ministry, oracles, and ordinances effectual for the work of gathering and perfecting the church, the saints. 
So we have the reality of the invisible church. We have the outward sign in terms of the visible church. And the visible church has a usefulness to the people of God, has a usefulness to those who are actually elect. And so we make use of the ministry, the oracles, and the ordinances. And we are to gather together and to be mature. Let me think about, let's think about this together for a second. Christ has given us the mission of filling the earth with the knowledge of himself. The gathering is the process of concentrating resources and forces. The gathering is the process of concentration, which is necessary to go on the offensive. You cannot go on the offensive unless you have resources sufficient to overcome defensive outposts. The gathering process is the process of concentration in order to go on the offensive. The perfecting process is the process of training and maturing. And so we are told in 1 John that there are babes in the word and you do not send babes into combat. And there are the young men. And those young men, they overcome the wicked one. They are fighting. They are fighters. They fight wickedness. They argue. They go engage. They are engaging with the world. And they are being trained by discernment and by this combat to become mature as fathers so they can train others. This is the Christian life. The church is to gather and to perfect. To gather and to perfect. You hear me talk about these things. Evangelize. Disciple people. When you're here, get mature. This is the theme. Why is this the theme? That's what we're supposed to do here. That's what we're supposed to do here. Section 4. This Catholic church has been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. And particular churches, so local congregations which are members of the Catholic or worldwide church, are more or less pure. How can we judge their purity? According as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. So that's the doctrine, worship, and government. The ordinances of the government there. These are the marks or notes of the church. You use these things to judge churches. Section 5. The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. And some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to His will. If you talk to a modern evangelical, you would expect that to end with, Nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to make sure to evangelize people and keep them worthless until they die. I wouldn't say that last part. But the idea of your goal is simply to evangelize people and then you just, that's it, you gather them. The emphasis on worship. There shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to His will. How important is the worship of God? God preserves a church and maintains the right worship of God. There will be worship of God. There will always be those who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There will be a church on earth that worships Him in spirit and in truth. And so our work has to be to maintain that, and our work has to be to call others to do that. The church exists in order to gather and perfect the saints so that there can be right worship. Section 6, there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, 
that exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. Anybody who calls themselves a prophet who is not a prophet. Anybody who says that they are an infallible teacher who is not an infallible teacher is antichrist. Is a son of perdition and ought to be opposed and prayed against. False prophets have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They have said that the Holy Spirit has said what the Holy Spirit has not said. And so there ought to be an opposition. So that's what our confession teaches. The only head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, go back to the handout. The visible church, all those who profess the true religion and their children, and the invisible church, those who are actually actually elect, are going to replace the outward signs of the Old Testament. We have there's always been the invisible church. There's always been those who are saved versus those who are not. But in the New Testament era, the visible signs will be simplified, made mobile, and become far more effectual to convert people, to build people up, and to cause a transformation in the world. There's greater gifting and deeper sanctification. This is a part of a chain of symbolism. God created the world as a theater of His glory. He made the garden to put man in. He placed man there to be indwelt and to know Him. He told him to fill the earth with garden and fill the earth with those who dwell in garden. To go from garden to garden city. To be compactly built. That there might be a deep concentration, knowledge of God. Israel was pulled out from the nations to prevent darkness from overcoming the earth. A tabernacle was given as a place for worship and to symbolize the glory of God being present with the people. The temple replaced the tabernacle. This would be a sturdy place on a mountain, a city. The incarnation comes and enters into this physical temple. He is the temple of the glory of God. And he says that the sign that shows that he has the authority to empty out this stone temple from pollution is that if they destroy his body, he will raise it up in three days. He gives that sign. And he has a church that goes out to all the nations. And in that, he causes the whole world to become his temple. That is the chain of symbols. That is the line of symbolism that's given to us. And each of them is given to help us to understand things that we otherwise wouldn't understand. A garden is beautiful. Man is more important than the garden. The garden is to fill the whole earth. There is a people to be called out that's separate from the city of man, Israel. There is to be a dwelling of God in their midst, the tabernacle. This is to be made permanent and sturdy and beautiful and stable in the compact city of God, the temple. It's necessary that that be connected to Christ, who is the husband of the church, the incarnation. The earth must be filled by the church. 
so that the knowledge of God can fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. There's the goal. Page 5. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, this time when he's going and cleansing the temple, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. They, they viewed, some people said, why do you empty out the temple of impurities? What sign do you give to justify that? Other people viewed the fact that he cleansed the temple as a sign. And it was. Remember what the Psalms say? Zeal for your house has eaten me up. That's a sign. What sign do you give to support the sign? What infinite chain of signs do they want? Always the request for a sign. And for the unbelieving generation that will not accept the teaching of the word of God, the sign that's given to them is the sign of Jonah. Sign of Jonah. Three days in the belly of the whale, of the fish. And then being risen. Jesus gives them that. He says in John 2, he says, I'm going to go into the belly of the earth and then, guess what? I will be resurrected. And so he points them to that sign of Jonah. And he's saying that they're unbelieving. But there are many who believed him. And even though there were many that believed him, Jesus doesn't commit himself to them. He doesn't trust them. Because he knows that all men are unreliable. And in knowing that all men are unreliable, he didn't need to find out from anybody. Are these reliable people? Are these reliable men? Should I uh, trust myself to them? How did he know that he could not entrust himself to these people. First of all, he had read the scriptures. Romans nine, sorry, Romans three, verses nine through twenty, has a list for you of Old Testament citations about the evil of man. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's not no one who understands, no one who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they know not. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Jesus knew this. He also had supernatural special revelation about the fact that these people were not ready, and he knew that he needed to die. He knew that he was not going to commit himself over to them as though this was the time to make himself king reigning in Jerusalem because, first of all, they would melt away, but secondly, he knew that he needed to be betrayed. And so, go to page 6, the last page. Augustine says here, Christ does not put his faith in human beings. Human beings put their faith in Christ. Augustine goes on to talk about the idea that we need to see people who are brought to believe something matured in it. He goes on in his commentary there about John to talk about the process of catechizing a person, seeing them baptized and coming to the Lord's table as communicants, and this idea of seeing people matured, and then the idea of them potentially serving. So perhaps he's talking about officers. That's certainly the case, but Christ had special knowledge, and he knew that this was not the time, that he must be betrayed so he could go through his death and burial, that he might be resurrected, ascended, and enthroned to the right hand of the Father, and then give distribution of the spoils at Pentecost, giving Holy Spirit gifts. In other words, 
Before the completion of his humiliation and the beginnings of his exaltation, it would be inappropriate for him to reign with these people who believed in him by his side. Christ's faith in man is inadequate to entrust himself to man because man's faith in Christ is inadequate at this stage to be relied upon to accomplish the purpose. So he did not commit himself to man. Man is made more mature by Christ being betrayed by the visible church. That's what happens, right? We have the highest court of the visible church betraying Christ and condemning him and sending him off to Pilate. Man is made more holy by the work of Christ and therefore can be relied upon more to be loyal and be under his banner and to die for his name. Christ is given to man and entrusted to him after man betrays Christ. And so we think about, we conclude here, what Peter did. Peter gives to us a perfect example of those who are with Christ. Christ is talking to Peter, and Peter says, I'm not going to betray you. I'll stay with you. I won't deny you even if I die by your side. And Jesus tells him, look, you're going to deny me three times before rooster crows twice. And then Mark 14 is the capturing of that. We need to be aware of our own weakness. But we also need to be aware of the fact that Christ is the one who makes us strong. Do not boast in your ability to stand for Christ, but do boast in God who is able to uphold you. Christ is the temple. We are His bride. And He will preserve and defend and uphold his bride. And he will wash us and remove every spot and blemish. We should trust in him, though we ourselves are not trustworthy. Our comments, or questions, or objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.